So uh, I know um, Ben last week shared with you guys that uh, I have just uh, completed, or not quite completed, but I have been sitting under the teachings of Derek Thomas last week. And so um, many things were kind of coming to me very quickly. Um, As we just finished Advent season, I had given a charge to our youth that, that they, as they focused in Advent season, that they not only focus on the work that Christ did in, on the cross and just simply him being born, but also his perfect life. And so that mated with this, uh, with, with this class that I've just been taking. I've been quite bathed in Christology. And as the year was coming to a close, I always try to do, and I encourage you guys to do the same thing, and I know you probably do, uh, to always evaluate, look back, and see where the Lord has taken you, and see the things that he has done to grow you through that year. And so this year I was thinking, now what is going to be the verse that I want to, uh, that I want to look to in the year 2018? And, uh, and that verse that, uh, that I was encouraged to, um, uh, to, to use was actually the verse that we find in um, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. And that tells us, it commands us that we consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so, for me, the simplicity of this consider Jesus is what is my focus going into 2018. And so, in order to understand what does that mean to consider Jesus, of course, we have to look back at what that instruction comes from. So what is the basis of that instruction to consider Jesus? And that is the scripture that we just read. And so when we, to, to come to that, it, 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 as it starts with the word therefore, we know that we must therefore consider and consider him and the work that he has done on our behalf. And so the, the writer of Hebrews in, in chapter 2 beginning in verse 5 he begins with this. Uh, he begins with this, this su- proclaiming the supremacy of Christ over the angels, and that is maybe a little bit foreign to us because we don't typically have a tendency to worship angels. And I believe that the reason that we don't is because this has been set right by the Scripture. So our understanding uh, uh, of this Scripture actually leads us away from that. But it appears that there was a tendency. Uh, to do so within the, uh, within the Hebrew believers, that they had a tendency to focus on the angels. And of course, we certainly do understand that angels were created as higher beings than we are because we can see that they are certainly uh, m- more intelligent than we are. They are not fallen creatures as we are. But when we look at this passage we, we look at this and we, we think, now, wait a minute, what, what, this, this, the angels are, are greater, right? But David, this, our, 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 the author of this letter, actually pulls us back to uh, Psalm 8 and quotes verse 4 and 6 of Psalm 8. And in verse uh, 4 and 6 of Psalm 8, it begins by saying, you know, what is man? What is man that you would consider him? And so what the writer is doing is presenting to us 
God's order of creation. And in presenting the order of creation, he is allowing us to see that God original, his original plan was that man would actually, be, uh, would actually rule the earth, that Adam would rule the earth. And, uh, and, and, and the thing that we have to be very cautious of is that when we read and we understand that the reason that this, we don't see this, as he says, when we look to, in this scripture, what, when we see this is, he says, but for a little while we don't see this, right? He says, we don't see this presently. And in, in, in looking at that and understanding what that means, it's, we see that it is due to the fall. It is exactly what we read of the fall in Genesis 3. So that is the reason that we don't now see him, man, being in control of all things. I, uh, I kind of got a chuckle uh, and was kind of reminded of this. Uh, maybe you guys heard this story last Sunday in New York. There was a man, uh, his name was uh, Lindsay Wise, uh, Wise Garver, okay? Lindsay Wise Garver had, as he described it, a giant wolf spider in his apartment. How many of you guys heard this story this week? Y'all didn't hear this. Wow, okay. Well, Mr. Wise Garver, seeing this spider, freaked out, and he decided to use a blowtorch to kill this wolf spider. And, of course, inadvertently, in the process of killing this wolf spider, I'm certain that he did it, he also managed to burn down his apartment in the process. <laughs> and, of course, I just kind of chuckled uh, and, and thought to myself, well, maybe the, the first part of his last name might should be detracted. But uh, I, 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 can't say, I can't really say that because it kind of reminded me of something that I might actually do. Oh, I, I could certainly go over the top and, and do something like that and, and think, oh, I'm going to get rid of this spider and, and, and in the process uh, get, rid of, um, get rid of the entire uh, apartment. So, but that's, that's the kind of thing that we see and we understand that because of the fall, we don't see man as in uh, control. Things are a bit out of control for them. Uh, one of the things uh, I often think about for myself, I had an experience once. I was pushing a lawnmower and came across a nest of yellow jackets. And I can assure you that in that moment, I certainly was not in control of that situation. And, uh, and once again, another example of how you know, we, we, we don't see man in, in control of all things. But what it leads us to understand as the writer of Hebrews points out, is that it is man who was to be in charge. And so he leads us to see that it is, has to be a man who regains that. And so we begin to understand why is it that Jesus had to come in the flesh? Why did he have to come in the flesh? And as we look at these scriptures, um, I'm, I'm going to make, uh, I want you guys to see five points uh, in this. I'm not going to enumerate them as we go through. I just want you guys to just kind of track as we go. Um, there's going to be five of them. Uh, as all good Calvinists, you guys should see five points. Okay? So, uh, so the first point is, in this we see his work in recreation. Okay? This is, we see Jesus' work in recreation. The second point, uh, we will see 
his work of redemption. His work of redemption. The third point that we will see is his defeat of the devil. His defeat of the devil. Fourth point we'll see is his mediation. And the fifth and final point is his triumph over temptation. And as we know, uh, those of us who have studied this book, we know that uh, the writer begins by declaring the supremacy of Christ. That is what uh, chapter 1 includes. And of course, he goes into the angels uh, again. And then uh, in the end, we we come out having uh, established these. Of his many aims, uh, the writer uh, methodically works methodically to establish God's divine order. And as we reach the beginning of the text, again, we have this in uh, verse 5 of chapter 2. He addresses God's creation in regards to angels and man. And, of course, David asked the question, as I uh, said earlier, that what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? As he continues into 7, we see this expression that we, man, were made for a little while lower than the angels. And in this verse, the writer is pointing to the fall and thus, again, the need for recreation, the first point. And um, anyway, this, the perfect example of our loss of dominion over uh, God's creation is, is all around us. We see it everywhere. We see it, uh, of course, in the Genesis 3 account. And so it begs the question, what was the reason for the fall? And we all know this answer. It was man's sin. It was man's sin that caused this. And, of course, we look to uh, what Paul said in Romans chapter 5. He teaches us that it was by the sin of one man that sin, or it was by the work or the sin of one man that sin entered the world. But again, we have to understand that this did not in any way upset God's plan. His plan always included that the fall would take place because it was from the beginning of time or before the beginning of time that he had planned a way to redeem his people. He had planned that his son uh, would be uh, bruised for our iniquities. If you will, look with me at verses 14 and 15. 14 and 15, it says this. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." This declares that Christ, in his active and passive obedience, he destroyed the works of Satan. In 1 John 3, 8, we read, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It was something that none of us could certainly ever do. And it took a man to do this. And so Christ had to come into the world on our behalf in order to defeat the works of Satan. Now, again, a lot of times we think to ourselves, and this, this is a pretty common uh, mistake, 
People will give the devil more power than he should have. The devil is not sovereign. He does not have the same powers that God has. We should certainly be wise and be cautious. And to be cautious to, to not fall in our temptation. And we should certainly know our enemy. But as this scripture teaches us, he has been defeated. He has been defeated. And so we, many of us, myself included, need to make sure that we stay focused on this fact. That our Lord and Savior has defeated Satan. He defeated Satan at the cross. And I often think, what, what, what was he thinking? What was the evil one thinking when he saw this happen to Jesus? He thought that he was defeated, that Christ was defeated. But we know that's not what happened. When he came up from that, out of that tomb, we know that he defeated Satan. And he defeated the works of Satan. And how do we know that he did? Because when we look at this scripture, it declares us, declares us to be justified in his, in, in, to God. We have been sanctified. Now we have to be very careful that we don't misunderstand that. This is the declaration of our sanctification. He who was the sanctifier has sanctified us. That is not to be confused with our progressive sanctification in which we are becoming more like Christ. That is certainly happening so that we do appear as righteous because our desire should be and actively be that we follow Christ in holiness and in perfection. As he did for us, we are led to do for him the same. And that is to understand that because he defeated Satan, that we can live in that triumph. That is a very important part of how we are to live, is to live triumphantly, not in us, not in what we've done, but as we reflect on the fact that he defeated Satan. We have been, as, as we look uh, at this scripture, we also see that we have been freed from the fear of death. What, what, what a joy that is. None of us who are in Christ should ever fear death. Though it is certainly an enemy, it is something that we do not look forward to. Our natural bodies do not desire to endure that. Nor did Jesus. Jesus didn't look forward to that. We don't look forward to that. But death is swallowed up in victory. As Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57, he says this, he says, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you note that it is through the Lord Jesus Christ? It is through what he did. Again, it is not anything that we do, but it is through his work and what he did. If you'll look at the, uh, the end of verse 15 and verse 16, 
He rescued us from sin. He rescued us from our sin. We were subject to lifelong slavery. A slavery to fear of death and also a slavery of sin. Paul speaks very specifically about this in his letters to teach us that we now, having been uh, declared righteous in his eyes, are no longer uh, uh, slaves to sin. And he tells us, why, should we, why would we want to continue in that? We've been freed from that. And as we go into the new year, we certainly want to look and examine that and let that be an encouragement to us to not go back to that sin. Again, this sanctification is something that we are involved in. The Spirit does the work in and through us, but we partner for this. Verse 11 and 12 say, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies those and who are sanctified all have one source that that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. We see in this that Jesus is our helper. He is our helper. He helps us. The spiritual offspring of Abraham. In Galatians 3, 26-29, Paul says this. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and no female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In addition to being our helper, he through his obedience to his heavenly father in becoming a man became our high priest. In verse 17, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. Here again, we see this brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We must not miss the significance of this statement, like his brothers. Once again, as the writer continues to point out, he came as a man. And in order for him to be our big brother, as we are adopted into the family of God, it had to be Christ as a man. It couldn't be an angel. It had to be Christ as a man. Lastly, but certainly not least in importance, for all of these are equally important, we need to make sure that we don't try to make this one bigger or that one smaller. These are all equally important. He can relate with us in temptation. Verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
those who are being tempted, and that is us. We are certainly day after day, minute by minute, tempted. I think about James who taught us that many of our temptations, their temptations come from within. Is that not definitely so? I find that to certainly be so in my life. It comes from those thoughts. Now, in the past, I have to share with you guys that I've had to repent of the false notion uh, that while Jesus walked on the earth, that his mind was not that of a man. I have often would often just chalk things up to, but he's God. He's divine. He's God. So I didn't quite catch how hard this temptation was for him. But today I encourage you to understand the importance of seeing him as having the mind of a man. Now, his mind was different from ours because it knew not sin. Our minds are very much tainted by sin. But he did not have a mind of sin. But he did have the mind of a man. As Hebrews 4.15, which we just uh, read, says, Christ has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Maybe in this, me explaining this, maybe some of you have experienced this where you just say, well, he was divine. And so he could, there was no problem for him in this temptation. What I would do is, and, and this is what I had to do, was to go back and read the Gospels. Go back and read the Gospels. And all of a sudden, you'll begin to see things that you didn't see. And you'll be able to understand more and more what he endured and how perfect he was. Because if we can't latch on to that and understand his true humanness, then we cannot understand the depths of what he did for us in his life and in his death. I think of seeing him led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and being tempted by the devil and understanding that he endured that with a human mind after he had fasted for 40 days. It's a lot more difficult when you understand that he had the mind of a man. A sinless human mind, but a human mind nonetheless. We see Jesus' anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prays, not as I will, but as you will. He had a human will. And that human will didn't want to experience the physical pain. He didn't want to have to endure the wrath of God. And I believe most importantly, he didn't, he didn't want to endure what he knew would be this feeling of separation that he experienced. Or what about when we hear him cry out from the cross, my God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? I don't think that his human mind could get around how painful that was going to be for him. It was very real and it was very painful. And I think it surprised his human mind and what that was like. But in this, we see his love for us, that he endured that. He was our propitiation. He bared the wrath of God on our behalf. Because all man's sins will be dealt with. And as we know, all men's sins will be dealt with. They were either dealt with at the cross or they will be dealt with in hell. The torment of hell. And we know that our God is a just God and the penalty will only be paid once. And so I have to warn you in hearing this that if you do not know the Lord personally, if he is not your Lord and Savior this morning, that that is your future. You will bear the wrath. You will experience the wrath in eternal hell. And so this morning I just encourage you to examine that. And I encourage you to test if that gift of faith has been given you. I pray that today you repent and you turn to the Lord. Because now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. And we know that because of his righteousness and his obedience, that you are now holy brothers and sisters because of Christ's work on the cross and in his perfect life. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Let us pray.